Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Judith Rusquet-Rabinor is a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, and writing coach. She is supervisor at the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia and a consultant to the Renfrew Center Foundation. Dr. Rabinor is the author of The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother, A Starving Madness, Tales of Hunger, Hope, and Healing, and Befriending Your Ex After Divorce making life better for you, your kids, and yes, your ex. She offers psychotherapy online for individuals, couples, and families, and conducts groups for binge eaters, clinicians, and writers. So Dr. Judy Rabinor, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And thank you so much, Dave, for making the time to speak to me. Yeah, so I've I've been reading your book, The Girl in the Red Boots, uh, which is really an, an awesome memoir. And um, I was just curious, you know, I always like to start these interviews by asking about stories and storytellers in your past. So, I mean, are there any particular storytellers who were important to you in your past or your even even certain stories? Well, my, uh, I, this is unusual. My grandmother was a writer and she uh, wrote three books and this was unusual for a woman born in, you know, the 1890s. And she would read, she loved reading to me. She loved reading aloud to me. She really nourished my love of story. And uh, so she's a person who I felt just thrived on telling me stories about her family and how they came over from Europe and how they built a family business. And um, I'd say she was a big influence on my life and she might come up again in another context in this conversation. I mean, what were her books about? Well, the first book she wrote was called Horse Cars and Cobblestones. And it was about growing up in New York in the era of horse cars and cobblestones and her family lived on the Lower East Side and her, her parents, my, my grandmother, who I'm named after, my middle name is Francis and, and Fanny was my great grandmother. And Fanny was the brains of the family. And she and her husband, Simon came over with nothing, zero. They had a push cart and they were in the rag business. They sold clothing and they built a shirt factory and then they built a big shirt business. Wow. Um, and then they moved uptown to the Upper East Side and they had a horse and buggy. And that was very unusual in those days. And that was the name of her book, Horse Cars and Cobblestones. And my grandmother was one of nine children and she was the only girl. So she held a really special place. Can you imagine having eight boys and then one girl? Right. Wow. So um, she, you can see her stories have stayed with me about the home she grew up in, about the family that she came from, a family of entrepreneurs. And then she went to Barnard. They said all the boys went into the family business and they sent her to Barnard. And she went there for only one year. Then she met my grandfather and against the feelings of her parents, she dropped out and she married him. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, I mean, your book is, is really a story about you and your mother to a large degree. And, um, you know, I know that this kind of story or this kind of self-discovery is really important to your practice as well. Could you sort of talk about that? How, how the stories of mothers and, and uh, daughters are so important to, to what you do? Yes. You know, I saw a joke in the New Yorker 
and it's a therapist uh, talking to a patient and he says to the patient, enough about the pandemic. Tell me about your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Great joke, right? So, I mean, the field of psychotherapy rests on several important premises, one of which is we are shaped by the families that we grow up in. And so when people come in with any kind of difficulty, trouble, concern, the question is, tell me about your family. You know, tell me about your life. Tell me about your beginnings. And so we all have stories, even this story that I just told about my grandmother, that's my story. But what we learned from one of the people who I admire a lot, who's Lori Gottlieb, uh, she wrote a book last year called uh, The Therapist, Her Therapist and the Lives We Live. She says we're all imperfect narrators. We carry a story with us, but that's just our story. And often psychotherapy helps people revise their story. Often people come to therapy feeling, what's wrong with me? And if they're in therapy with me, I hope they leave feeling, what's right with me? Now I got a window into what's right with me, and I got a window into how I became the person I was. And I came this way to, I became this way to cope with my life. So for example, a person who's a giant worrier, perhaps they had a lot to worry about. Perhaps they had a parent who rewarded them for worrying. Mm. Perhaps that was what happened every night at dinner. Some families grew up like my family, which, what did you do today? Some families grow up with, tell me the best thing that ever happened to you today. Some families grow up with, what went wrong today? Tell us what went wrong. And so we get seeded. All different ways we are is seeded by the families we grow up in. So, I mean, one thing about therapy is helping people think about their narrative and think, does this narrative serve me? Does this narrative serve me? Also, most people don't come to therapy until there's a moment of being discouraged. And they often walk in feeling like too many things have gone wrong at the same time. Right. And there may be an underneath story like what's wrong with me or I'm a loser or when is my life going to change? Is there anything that therapy has taught you about the shapes of stories, the way people construct stories? And, you know, are there different types of, of story structures that are, you know, maybe more beneficial or, or less beneficial? Well, I think I grew up in a family. Uh, I grew up with a mother who was, who I describe in my book as a Pollyanna optimist. And so no matter what happened, she said, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And I think I was drawn to becoming a therapist because I felt that was a way of, I felt very dismissed. And I wanted to be in an environment where I would feel recognized. And it's okay to have some bad stories and sad stories and not always be told everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Even though now people in my family joke and they say you became like your mother because you (laughs) act as if things will work out. And in fact, I think I now do believe things will work out, but the things will work out that kind of message is not really a great story. It's great to know things go up and down. We all have hard times and we all have better times. We all have vulnerabilities and we all have strengths. And it's important for a story to honor a person's vulnerabilities as well as their strengths. It's not only important for a child to know you're great because you hit a home run. How about you're great because you went out for the team? You're great because you had a good time, even if you sat on the bench the whole time. So 
a story that's all too positive or all too negative um, is problematic. And it's better for people to really know that life has ups and downs. There are bumps in the road. And that being able to identify your resources is kind of the key to happiness and key to knowing that you can get through stuff. But it seemed like your mother really didn't have stories. She just sort of jumped to the end, you know, which is, you're going to be fine. But there was no, there was no, because uh, she, she didn't want to explore things more deeply. That's what it seemed like, right? Well, yes, that was exactly right. Um, pause. That was exactly right. I mean, I was thinking about the fact that I grew up believing that my parents had this perfect romance and that the captain of the cheerleaders married the captain of the football team. And isn't this wonderful? And it wasn't until I went to college that I found out, yeah, that's one part of the story. Captain of the cheerleaders married captain of the football team. But I didn't learn the second part of the story, which was that this marriage came about because my mother got pregnant. And there was a big price to pay, that the price to pay was that my parents were both deprived the opportunity to go to college. So instead of going to college, they went down to work in a family. My father went down to work in the family business in a factory town. And my mother at 18 followed him and went down to the factory town and had no friends and missed out on what she thought was going to be her future. And three months after they got there, my mother lost the baby. And so there she was with no baby, no college, and a newlywed at 18. And, you know, this is only a generation ago. Now we think of people of 18 as young, way too young to be getting married. But that became her life. And I never heard that story. So I grew up with the finished product. Yeah, we got married. Not with the story that this was a pretty challenging moment. And the truth is she did make her life work or we'll get into that as we go along. She did make her life work, but it wasn't all a bed of roses, was it? Right. Right. But you said that you actually said in the book that your fairy tale about the family exploded based on another piece of information that you later learned. But what do those fairy tales, I mean, you know, those fairy tales are so important and yet they're also so uh, misleading in a lot of ways. They're misleading and they're damaging. Their fairy tales are damaging to think that life is so simple. And so, for example, thinking that captain of the football team married captain of the uh, cheerleaders implies that, don't worry, you just meet the right person and everything works out. Right. Everything actually doesn't always work out and things usually work out when we make them work out. When we make them work out, when there are some adjustments, like for example, today I had a session with a patient who was talking about going back with her old boyfriend. And she started talking about all the things that went wrong with him. And I said, well, it's good that you're thinking about what the red flags were in the relationship. And then later in the conversation, we both agreed that all, all people have red flags. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect relationships. That relationships have strengths and have weaknesses and have little flaws and little cracks because human beings are very imperfect. I mean, my mother also had another story that grow, drove me crazy. And that was that her mother was perfect. And her childhood was perfect. And I used to say to her, how is this possible, Ma? You never did any things that you didn't get punished when you grew up. You didn't ever come home late. You didn't ever do anything that broke the family rules. She'd say, I, I, have a, I must have a bad memory. I don't remember any arguments with my parents. Well, 
you you you're an interviewer you know people you interview countless numbers of people and actually having arguments with people is okay because people are different and figuring out how to resolve our differences is what builds a genuine relationship not just imagining that everything is going to be fine 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 so um but but it seems like people are really like even if you think about the whole culture right now it seems like people are really drawn to these reductive fairy tale kind of depictions of you know he's the bad guy you know right we're the good guys right and right. good guys and the people bad don't guys. want to uh, admit they'll, they'll they'll vigorously defend those stories even mm-hmm. when they're clearly clearly being challenged so they want these simple simple stories Right, and they want to feel like their perspective is the perspective. There's mm-hmm. only one take on this story, mine, right? And so I think a sign of maturity, or I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, is understanding there really are multiple perspectives on every story. And I think that when people set about to write a memoir, that I know I was really curious about my own story because on the one hand I had a lot of complaints about my mother which I hear in my office every day and on the other hand I loved her deeply I loved her deeply and it's really important to know that we can have ambivalence in every important relationship we can both love and feel devoted to a parent or a spouse and we can also feel um, critical of certain aspects and we cannot understand aspects of other people. And we, and I never really did get to understand how my mother got to have this unidimensional way of looking at the world, that everything was perfect. I never, I didn't get to understand her, but I got to understand a lot about myself And that's, I think, why people actually tell stories and like telling stories, because we're always, every time we tell a story, there's an opportunity for a nuance of it to be a tiny bit different, or for us to see another piece of the story. Right. I mean, you know, as a therapist, you, you carry around like millions of stories, you, you, you just pick up stories every day, you're just inundated with with people's stories how do you how do you deal with that that uh, I, I don't want to call it a burden but it it seems like a very special responsibility or requires some kind of technique somehow well let me tell you something it's funny that you asked that because i wrote down recently a quote from adrian broder do you know who she is she wrote a book last year called wild game my mother, her lover, and me. It was a memoir about her relationship with her mother, which of course drew me to read this book. And she wrote, you have no idea how much you can learn about yourself from listening to other people's stories. (laughs) Isn't that a, I'm going to repeat that because I think it's, you have no idea how much you can learn about yourself from listening to other people's stories. So as we listen to other people's stories, we hear holes in the story. And as a therapist and even as a a listener, as um, an interviewer like you, or when we listen to our friends, we say, wait a second, you left something out. Like you're telling me this guy had a red flag. What was it? Well, he didn't earn enough money. Well, well, what happened? He started out on Wall Street and then he was unemployed. There's a piece of that story missing. So when we listen to stories, we're always deepening. And as we deepen our appreciation of another person's stories story i think it helps us think about the complexity of our own story but it also seems like you have become sort of almost a critic of or a um like you're you're listening for what's missing like the story either holds together or it doesn't you know 
you know, the interesting thing about being a therapist is in the beginning, you don't even know what you're listening to for. You have to hear some of the story in order to figure out what am I listening for? Um, so yeah, you're listening to hear how did this person become the person that they are and what is it that they really want and what are they really here in therapy for? And very often people don't know why they're here in therapy. They just know something doesn't feel right. You know, we're having a mental health crisis now, a complete mental health crisis. And that's because the world does not feel right to so many people. So many of the things that we've grown up to expect, like you're going to take a vacation, right? Wrong. You might take that vacation. The flight might be canceled. The hotel might not be running anymore. I mean, there are so many changes that have happened in the last two years, and they've really affected the way people feel about their lives. Um, so we're listening to think, what 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 is the what is the crux of what makes my son used to say my mom is a psychologist and she always says to me what makes Zachary Zachary you know what makes him what are the unique features of this individual sitting in front of me I, I was wondering I, like you know having thought about your own story I'm sure a lot you know when you actually went to write it down you know when you actually did the process of writing it down. How did that change your understanding or how was that different? Well, when I, I must have a hundred files in my computer of the book I was going to write called Careless Love. And that was the title of the book because I felt my mother was kind of careless. And as you well put it, you know, that she didn't really want to delve into anything. It was just a lot of fluff and there was too much that was superficial about her. And that was the story I carried. And as I wrote the book, my story changed. As I wrote the book, I saw that my mother had done a number of extraordinary things, but I stayed stuck on the ways that I had felt hurt or misunderstood by her. And those ways that I felt hurt or misunderstood by her, they're true. They didn't disappear because I felt the more positive things. But my perspective on her changed. It deepened. It broadened. And so to go from careless love to the girl in the red boots making peace with my mother and... um the girl in the red boots was an adorable story my mother told about me. And it was one of the ways she really um, appreciated my energy, my zest, my adventurousness. And for much of my life, I thought I inherited those qualities from my father. But it wasn't until I got near the end of finishing this book that I realized my mother was an adventurer. And even the very story I started this interview with, that my mother went down to Maryland with my father, a newlywed about to have a baby, and boom, she experiences a miscarriage. Well, she survived. She thrived. She made friends. She joined a recipe club. Um, she thrived. And so I was able to see my mother as a very strong woman by the end of the book. And it still is mind boggling to me. And it helps me that many people who come to see me now have read my book. And so now I can talk to people about we all have blind spots. For example, my mother didn't go to college and she went back to college when she was 56 years old and she got her, met her bachelor's when she was 63. And when I started writing that chapter, I thought, how many people do I know who got their bachelor's degree at 63? And I wrote in the book, I couldn't think of one. I'm not saying there aren't any. I hope there are people out there listening who do know people. But there are very few people who go back to college at 56. 
And I just sort of took it for granted. I remember her calling me up, telling me she was going to go back to school. And I thought, wow, that surprises me. I had never heard her talk about that. But somewhere deep within, there must have been an ember of a little fire that was burning. And she didn't complain. Oh, my God, I never went to college. She just kept that ember stayed alive. And when the right time approached, she went back to school. I still think of that with such admiration and respect that she did that at that age in her life. And why did she do that? She wanted to. She said, this is a chapter of my life that was missing, and I want to do it. It's interesting that you changed the title of the book from something that was about her to something that was about you. It was something that was about both of us, because the girl in the red boots was a story she loved to tell about me. And what I realized at the end is that she was the original girl in the red boots. Mm. And that she had, I mean, that's a pretty adventurous thing to do to go back to college when you're 56 years old. And so, I mean, what what does that story, is there any other resonance to you of that story, The Girl in the Red Boots? Because it is so powerful and uh, and striking. Well, this is a kind of interesting thing. Um, my mother was a very authentic person. And one of the things she did when I told her I was going to get divorced and I was 40 and she had heard all the reasons I was going to get divorced. And I said to, she said to me, why are you getting divorced? There's not a thing wrong with your husband. He's a wonderful provider. He loves the children. Who knows what will happen to you? Who knows if you'll ever meet anyone? Who knows if you'll, if you'll meet somebody and he may have a crazy ex-wife, he may have children who don't like you, and you may never meet anyone. And I was very angry at her with that response. That also felt very superficial. And where did she come off saying all that to me? Later, I began to realize my mother at least was authentic. And she said what she really believed. Don't get divorced, Judy. Have an affair. It is better to keep your family together than it is to break up your family. Now, you know, because you read the book and anybody out there did not read the book, but I was very angry at my mother because she had already confided in me three weeks after my father died that she had been having an affair for eight years. And I thought, oh, my God, you think I should do what you did, have an affair instead of trying to find somebody that maybe I will be more compatible with and I will be happier with. And we had many, many rounds of conversations. And she said, breaking up your family is a very big, difficult thing to do. And you know what? She was right. Divorce has many ramifications that are really complicated. And I wish instead of telling me to have an affair, she had said to me, Let's just sit down and talk about this more because having an affair might not have been the answer anyway. But she told me her truth. She told me her truth. And in a way, I understood when I got older how she had married her high school boyfriend who she met when she was 14. And so when she was 40 or 45 and felt like this marriage is not really tenable, She didn't have the options I had. She was not a PhD psychologist. She was living in a completely different era where divorce is now commonplace. When people get married, people really say, fingers crossed this marriage survives. But that wasn't true when she got married in 1936. When she got married, marriage was supposed to be really forever. She She said this to protect me. She thought getting divorced would be a big mistake. I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but you asked. Does that relate to the red boots somehow? 
Well, you asked me about that. Um, she was an adventurer in her own life when she went and had an affair. And she was an adventurer when she told me she confided in her daughter, even though I don't think it was the right thing for her to confide in me. But she felt proud of what she had done. She mm-hmm. felt happy that she was now going to get married to somebody and telling me she wouldn't be alone. So she had a certain amount of zest and enthusiasm for her own life. And that was a little part of the girl in the red boots. She was not a woman who felt sorry for herself, not even at the end of her life when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's, when she then developed dementia. And I remember her saying, I've been lucky. I've had a great life. I have two children who love me. She was lucky. My brother and I both lived in New York and we moved her to an assisted living around the corner from the two of us. Um, But she did feel that she had her own zest and her own life. And that's a little part of what the girl in the red boots, the girl in the red boots was my story of wanting a pair of red boots. So I guess I got to see my mother as a more complicated person as I wrote the book as a woman who had married young, had married because she was pregnant, did have an affair when she felt like her needs were not going to be be met and did not get divorced because divorce was not what it is today. People in her generation, it was a big hardship if a woman with no career, with no way to earn an income got divorced. So in her way, she had her own red boots. She made her life work. One thing you say in this, the uh, book, when you're talking, you know, you have these sections where you you ask the reader to sort of imagine <clears throat> their own mother. And you say something like, feel the story in your body, you know, mm-hmm. feel how you feel mm-hmm. in your body as you're telling this story. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you feel that stories reside in the body or are somehow resonating in the body? How is the body like part of the storytelling in a way? Yeah, why is the body important? Well, think about this. Uh, I'll do it right now. Think about being a baby in the crib. You be a baby in a crib and I'll be a baby in a crib too. And now imagine the door cracks open and it's mom coming in to pick you up. And think about what it feels like in your body to see this familiar, loving face in the doorway. And I right now feel an excitement in my body as I'm imagining being a baby in a crib, thinking about somebody coming to pick me up and they're going to either cuddle me or give me something to eat, take me out of the crib. And so the reason I continually ask people, both in the book and in therapy, Take a moment and go into your body because our feelings originate in our bodies. They originate in a pre-verbal state before we have words. The baby in the crib isn't saying, gee, mom, I'm so happy to see you. They're just standing up. All that energy and excitement is in their body, in their smile, in their eyes, in their arms, in their little legs, in hanging on to the crib, you know, maybe shaking the crib. And so a lot of times it's funny because therapy is called talk therapy, the talking cure, but sometimes words don't really express how we feel. Sometimes how we feel the excitement we feel about something or the pain and the agony, it's not summed up in the word agony or in the word pain. It's deeper than that. It's that sick feeling if your life goes, if something happens and your life gets screwed up, you wake up in the morning with that sick feeling, oh, I'm up and I have to really deal with this. What's the word for that? The, I have a sick feeling. I woke, is it depressed? Is it, I have a sick feeling? Sometimes it's just a bodily feeling of the world is not right, as opposed to the good feeling. I'm so excited as I'm standing up in my crib waiting for somebody to come get me something good. So 
you know, a lot of writers talk about how in order to be a better writer, in order to go deeper, just doing some breathing and getting into your body takes you out of your head, into your body, into where our emotions were born. Because our emotions were born in our body. They're not born in our head. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. I mean, I think, you know, as you were talking about it, it just made me more aware of how the words are so insufficient to capture what's really felt, you know. And we, That's exactly we, sort, of, right. we sort of diffuse the energy by putting it into words. You know, we sort of, it almost pixelates it or something, you know? Exactly. It, we're, we're grasping and we need words to communicate. But I mean, as you're talking, I'm remembering that after my father died, I would sometimes wake up in the morning and I think, wait, did this really happen? You know, that sick feeling, hmm. that sick feeling. And having a, a breakup or having a fight with someone you love, you wake up in the morning and you feel, oh, Right. Did, did I really go to sleep mad? We went to sleep mad. Now what? And it's a sick feeling. I'm not even doing the feeling justice by just repeating the phrase, the sick feeling. Right? Right. That's a funny thing that it's called the talking cure therapy, but it's not really the talking cure. It's the listening cure. It's learning to listen. I mean, the a patient talks to the therapist and the therapist listens, and the therapist helps the patient listen to himself. Listen to what your body is telling you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's no motivator to change things like that sense of sickness, right? That feeling of, you know, it's, it's inside you. It's in your cells, you know? Right. That sick feeling inside of you where you just, oh, you wish this thing could have gone away that happened yesterday or whenever it was, or a bad dream even, a bad dream. And it's a dream is so real. And where are you left? You're left with the sick feeling in your body, right? I mean, that's why I think meditation has become so popular. It really asks people to just stop talking, stop thinking, and just breathe deeply and go back into your body and see if you can find a place of calmness, you know, a place of peace. If you can surrender to the calmness inside and notice what happens. I feel myself even get calm when I say those little phrases. It's funny because I lead a meditation group. And as, as we were talking before, I was thinking about how, you know, as I'm leading, as I'm you know, guiding, the words are often just insufficient, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, they, they're just sort of like, you know, it's like trying to stick a pin in jello, you know, and so ultimately the only words, you know, that, that really do it, and even these are kind of wrong, are like sit and be, you know, right, or like you breathe say anything else, right? Like breathe in, breathe, breathe in, let it go. Right. And just notice and just notice. And I think we live in such a busy world and that so many people are really just dying for quiet, for quiet and calm and to mm -hmm. feel like I'm okay without so much going on. Isn't it great if I can just breathe in and let it go? Yeah. One thing you were talking about was, um, you know, what it felt like to write the story. And I know there's a lot of writers who have tried in different ways to sort of exercise, you know, different things that they either worry about or that actually happened to them. Um, and with, with different levels of, of success, you know, um, do you, have you, have you ever worked with actual bibliotherapy or, or poetry therapy? And, and how do you find that works for you? I feel it works completely great. And as a matter of fact, I have had 
I mean, I'm often recommending that people keep journals and to just pay attention to what's, first of all, it's wonderful to have a document that shows you how you felt last week and how you felt yesterday. And for all of us to notice how life really does just go up and down. Life goes up and down. That is the reality. And that goes back to the first question you asked me. My mother irritated me because I felt like every story, as you correctly put it, it had very little meat in the middle of it. It just was a happy ending. It was just going to be like a fairy tale. Girl meets boy, happy ending. Right. Right. And so noticing our own rhythm our own rhythm of breathing, our own rhythm of life that one day feels wonderful and the next day feels horrible. And that is just how life is for many people. Some people are more even. And that there's just so many ways of being on the planet. But to become familiar with your own rhythm um, gives you a kind of stability. This is who I am. Just like I said, my son would say, what makes Zachary Zachary? He used to say, my mom's a psychologist. She helps people know what make them tick. Cute, right? Right. Cute. She helps. And we all want to know what makes us tick. You know, it's, it's wise to pay attention to what really gets me excited and what really makes me down in the dumps. And let me try to organize my life in a way that I don't have to be down in the dumps too much. But it's not possible to never be down in the dumps. One thing that you also talked about in the book was, um, you know, the the fact that therapists sometimes serve as kind of transitional friends, family members. Um, so on the one hand, you know, the, you, your clients may direct these very powerful feelings at you, but you know, ultimately that it's not meant for you or it's not about you. How, how do you well, deal with that? Well, because I, uh, you know, there, there, are, I deal with it by, I have a little mantra in my head and that is blood is thicker than therapy. My goal is to help everyone be attached to the people in their family who are going to be there for the long run. I'm there for the short run. And I'm hoping that the relationship with me will help them think about relationships that they want. There may be things in their relationship with me that they don't like, and that's fine. They may think I ask too many nosy questions, for example. And that's good for them to be able to tell me, you're interrupting me, or why are you asking me all these questions, or why did you ask me the same question you asked last week? And it's good for them to explore different ways of communicating, different ways of setting boundaries, different ways of feeling connected, and then to take all that out to the outer world. What we don't want is that the therapist is the only important person in the patient's life. And talk about a red flag, that's a red flag. When the therapist becomes overly important, you know, another thing I really wrote about in the book is how Therapy is not a one-way street. Therapists learn from patients. Therapists learn from watching how patients conduct their own life, how patients develop resources. I mean, to take something really simple, like, like somebody used to talk to me about how impatient she was. And I said, well, that's something you can work on. If you want to be more patient, you can work on it. And then we would talk about how she'd work on it and what it means to say nothing rather than to let something jump out of your mouth. And she'd write about it. She'd write about what it was like not to speak back to somebody when she might get herself in trouble. And it didn't take that long before she felt, you know what, this is great. I am really, I have become more patient. Well, every time I watch anybody learn to play tennis or work on um, whether it's something as concrete as learn to play tennis or something as psychological as become more patient. 
there were applications for my life too, right? There, there are things that I learn about just, I watch somebody else's learning style and I wind up going home thinking about my learning style. And therapists ask patients to take risks, you know, to try something new. And then that's another thing. I think about my own capacity to take risks, both as a therapist and in life. So to me, I feel very fortunate that I've become a therapist because it's a really fascinating field of work. Um, There's just always more to understand and learn about every human being alive, including ourselves. It's kind of our work is never done. I think one of my favorite statements in your book is uh, often we thrive when we can give others exactly what we yearn for most. I think that's such a powerful observation and it makes me think about the word thrive though, because what does it mean to thrive by giving away what you really want? Let me think about that. What it, what does it mean to thrive by giving away what you really want? It's a good question to ask because anybody who's a parent often will give their children exactly what they wish they had gotten as a child. Mm-hmm. But sometimes parents become over-invested in what happens to the kids and and it suddenly becomes too important, right? Yes. So hopefully therapists don't become overly invested in their clients um, because that would put a ridiculous pressure on the client and it puts a terrible pressure on children too. But I think it's a good question. I mean, think of the pleasure you can get in preparing a nice meal and giving it to somebody. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. No, I I mean, I think this this statement is really hit home for me because that's the way I am, you know, but it made me think about what it means to thrive with that kind of mindset, you know? Well, one good thing about it, I never thought about that when I wrote that line is that we can complain about what we didn't get. And rather than complain about what we didn't get, we can figure out how to either give it to ourselves or give it to other people. Mm-hmm. Or both. Or both, exactly. And in giving to others, we often are giving to ourselves. Mm-hmm. W- would you agree? Totally, yeah. I mean, I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. I probably wouldn't do it if I didn't, right? Exactly, right. Exactly. So we get a lot of satisfaction in giving somebody something that we really needed. And I did write that I think I became a therapist because number one, I needed to have, I I wanted to be a listening presence for somebody. And I also became a better listening presence for myself. At least I like to think that. Mm -hmm. I I mean, having, having written the girl in the red boots, what, What's the next story that you think you want to tell? You know, interestingly enough, somebody asked me that the other day. And I thought, I spend so much time writing about my mother, thinking about my mother. And I started thinking about, and my grandmother, because she's in my book also. But my great-grandmother, the woman I was named after, Hmm. Fanny, Fanny. I thought, how come I know so little about her? And I wonder whether as, you know, we're becoming very conscious of the intergenerational connection between us with our ancestors, that I would like to know more about her. And that's my next project. I don't know whether it will Mm. morph into a book or whether it'll just be a little independent project. But Mm. right now I'm having a very good time talking about this book and listening to what other people say about the issues they've run into in making peace with their mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, one thing I didn't write about at all in this book was that we have such an idealized version of what a good mother is. 
And it means that most people feel somewhat deprived because their mother was far from perfect. Their mother was just an ordinary human being who some days was down, was some days depressed, some days was very busy. And many of the wounds we carry from childhood, I think, become our wounds deepen given the idealized version of motherhood that we have in our culture. And that has a damaging impact in lots of different ways. I see you nodding, so. The fairy tale. The fairy tale. The fairy tale. Hmm. The fairy tale of the, the very good mother who's always smiling, who's always wearing her apron, who's always giving cookies and milk to her kids when they come home from school. And that's just not what life has been like, certainly during this pandemic where all the parents of young children have been trapped in their houses. And I'm using that word trapped deliberately because everyone benefits from getting out and having other venues of life. And there still are so many ways that we're all being very confined. Sure. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. It was it was such a good conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I'll look forward to our paths crossing again. We don't know when or how, but I'll keep my fingers crossed. Definitely. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.